seats. Welcome, my name is Paul Reese, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Shard Chapel, and it's a privilege to open God's Word and to seek to teach it today. Well, this week we've been uh, taken back into kind of the COVID crisis as 100,000 WhatsApp messages from Matt Hancock to other people in government found its way into the Daily Telegraph, and uh, Matt Hancock says he's feeling betrayed. Uh, He grudgingly had to resign as the health Secretary, when a video was leaked of him in a very uh, long embrace with another government official, uh, Gina Colladangelo, at a time when strict social uh, guidance uh, measures were in place. Uh, in, a, in a TV reality show, he said this to one of the contestants, Yes, I messed up. There was no excuse for breaking the rules, but I fell in love. Now, there was lots of outrage about the hypocrisy of uh, breaking guidance uh, demanded of others, but actually very little uh, outrage at how both he and Gina uh, abandoned their respective spouses in order to move in together, leaving uh, behind sort of two devastated spouses, two shattered families, each of them three kids each, uh, who are going to be damaged by a very public divorce. But what else could they do? It was out of, their, out of their control. They fell in love. Well, what do you think about that? Well, what, what does God have to say? Well, please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And you find that on page 77 in the church Bibles. We're going to focus on the seventh commandment today in verse 14. But let me just start by reading the first couple of verses just to remind us. Uh, who is speaking these words. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And if you go down to verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Now, in the original language, uh, there's two words, lo nahath, simply no adultery. What is adultery? Well, adultery is to engage in sexual intercourse with someone who is not your spouse. It's quite concrete and clear. There's a separate word for two people engaging in sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Uh, Both are seen as sinful in the Bible. But of all the different sexual uh, sins described in the Bible, the chief sexual sin, the most harmful of them all, is that of adultery. And under the Mosaic Covenant for Israel, it was seen as such an evil that both parties engaging in adultery should receive the death penalty. So in Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, it says this, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, Both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So why was adultery viewed as such an evil that it was deserving of death? Well, to understand that, we need to see the positive uh, God-given purpose for sex and marriage that this prohibition is seeking to protect. 
And so as with all the other commandments, we need to turn back to the opening chapters of Genesis to get the foundations clear. So turn with me back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. You'll find this on page 3 of the church Bibles. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over livestock and all the wild animals and over all the other creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So three points I want to make this morning about how this command, the seventh commandment, applies to us today. Firstly, we should honor marriage as God's good design for sex. We should honor marriage as God's good design for sex. So we see from these uh, verses from Genesis chapter 1, that um, sex is part of God's good design. Uh, we see the equality and the dignity of both men and women. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Men and women, both created by God to rule over his creation. They're both in God's likeness, both are spiritually connected to God, both male and female are called to bear the family likeness to God as a, as a son bears likeness to his father. Men are not superior to women, women are not superior to men, both equal in dignity and um, as valuable in God's created uh, rule as, as rulers over his creation. And it's clear from the account, isn't it, that God created us equal and different. Now, there's a form of feminism in the past that tried to say, well, there's no difference between men and women. Whatever a, a man can do, a woman can do better. And uh, feminist writers are starting to have a bit of a rethink about that. It's been interesting to me to read about people like Helen Joyce and Louise Perry and Kelly J. Keene, who are, who are writing about the very real sex-based differences between men and women. And that social policies need to come to terms with some of these fundamental biological realities. God created humanity to have two sexes who complement each other. And only together can they um, have the potential of being fruitful. To have and to raise children uh, to be godly, wise rulers over his creation. It's just simply not possible uh, with two women or two men. You can't simply swap out a man for a woman or a, man, a woman for a man. These biological sex-based differences are all part of God's good creation. Um, whatever strange interventions, uh, hormones and surgery can do, you cannot turn a woman into a man nor a man into a woman. For these sex-based differences are kind of hardwired into every cell of our bodies with ongoing physical realities. And I feel really sad for those who experience gender dysphoria and who are struggling to come to terms with their own bodies. But the way to love people is never to help them harm their own bodies. 
but to help them and, and, and to nurture and care uh, for them so that they will come to accept the body that God has given them in his wise, uh, loving care. Now, these biological uh, sex differences are all necessary, a part of God's good creation. See, God created us to be sexual beings. God designed sex, yes, for the creation of children. He also designed our bodies to be able to experience sexual pleasure and delight. Uh, the Bible is not prudish nor embarrassed about sex. Uh, there's one whole book in the Bible given over to uh, this, the Song of Songs. I preached on it a few years ago. It seems to be quite popular, if I recall it. Uh, the wonder of love, the delight even expressed there of, um, uh, of, of the bodily delights of sex. It's all in there. The Bible's not embarrassed. Sex is not dirty. It's not naughty. It's a good gift of God to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. Sex is part of God's good design, and it matters. And equally, marriage between a man and a woman matters. So turn over to Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 20. You sort of get a slightly different account of creation in the second chapter from a different perspective. In Genesis 2 verse 20, it says this, So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now here we see the covenant of marriage is when a man and a woman commit to each other as husband and wife in a public way. It's the place where they make um, promises to an exclusive, lifelong, monogamous, forsaking all others type covenant commitment to each other in the presence of God. As God makes promises and is faithful to his promises, so we are called to be people in his likeness who, who make promises and stay faithful to those promises. And that commitment really matters, especially in the raising of children. I mean, God created us to be sexual beings for this purpose of unity in marriage to become one flesh, as we've just read, united in an interconnected and permanent union of their whole lives. Um, the sexual part of that union being a powerful superglue that bonds the man and the woman together so that children can be born and raised in a loving home. Sex is really kind of baked into what marriage is all about. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul teaches the profound equality in terms of sex, that a husband and wife should yield their bodies to each other, not to deprive each other unless they have mutually agreed for a short time for a time of prayer. And we learn in the book of Ephesians that every marriage is actually pointing to something far more profound, the union of Christ and his church. See, marriage is a, is a temporary 
of this age type institution that's pointing forward to something ultimately far superior, loving fellowship uh, in the new creation uh, between people and God. That's what it's pointing forward to. And so in this age, marriage is God's good design uh, of the place for mutual self-giving that will promote the flourishing of life and society. And all the sociological data out there will, will back this up. Last week I read a report of a, of a study of 6,800 men in Colorado showing that um, the commitment to marriage helps, helps men live longer. Lifelong bachelors um, are twice as likely to die from heart failure than married men. Wow. Is it because their wives stop them eating bad things? I don't know, but there we are. And of course, statistics show that women and children in broken homes are, are more at risk of physical or sexual abuse than those in intact families. That cohabiting relationships do not have the stability and longevity of marriages. That broken homes where the father's no longer around tend to have negative effects on the children, issues of poverty, of lower educational achievements, of greater antisocial behavior. Louise Perry, who I don't think is a Christian, published a book last year, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And she argues that um, the sexual revolution has, has not been good for women or for men. The porn culture, the hookup culture, uh, the casual sex culture is profoundly damaging to women and to men. And she argues in a book that mere consent is not enough to preserve a healthy society. That what's needed is like a true commitment, you know, I don't know, something like marriage. On Friday, Mary Harrington uh, published her book, Feminism Against Progress, where she writes of her own experience. After living in a sexually liberated lesbian commune, she says she only found peace and equality when she married a man and became a devoted mother. In her experience, sexual freedom brought emptiness, alienation, too little interdependence, and a collapsing social life, she writes. What she discovered was that the commitment and constraint of marriage was actually liberating. That being devoted to the care of her child was actually more fulfilling than pursuing an absolute freedom of just pleasing herself. And it seems clear enough to her that sex outside marriage just carries so much more risks for women than men, so that the commitment of marriage as a precondition for sex is a far superior arrangement, she writes. And she's opposed to easy divorce because she says the fundamental point of marriage is loyalty. Now, I find that fascinating to the, that these feminist writers now have found their way back to really a biblical sexual ethic and not surprising uh, as the Bible is the maker's instructions of what makes for the good life describing what it means to love God and to love others you see in that positive healthy design of what sex and marriage are for that's in that context we see why adultery is such an evil it is a blatant dismantling of what God has joined together it is a breaking of the solemn promises made before God. It's attacking the sanctity of God's purposes for union between a husband and a wife. It's attacking the very stability of a marital home, bringing dislocation and damage to the children and to the community around. Long before the time of Moses, um, 
and the, the declaration of the Sinai Covenant, Joseph knew that it was wrong to acquiesce with the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife. As was read to us earlier, he said this to Potiphar's wife, My master's withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So under the Mosaic Covenant, the seriousness of, of this sin is that it was punishable by the death penalty. And as you come into the New Covenant, in the New Testament, it is clearly a grounds for divorce. And so the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 13 repeats the positive teaching of the Seventh Commandment by saying this, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral, it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. And so my second point kind of flows from this. We need to be radical to avoid adultery. We need to be radical to avoid adultery. See, inside the covenantal loyalty and the commitment of marriage, sex is a good, nurturing thing. Outside of marriage, sexual activity will, will harm, will debase, will corrupt, will damage, and if not repented of, will actually take us to hell. And so any adulterer who says, well, I couldn't help it, you know, we fell in love, what else could we do? They're deluding themselves. Because sex outside of marriage is just evil lust. Where does adultery come from? Well, we read this text last week, Mark chapter 7. Uh, Jesus says it comes from our own unclean, sinful hearts. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and they defile a person. Sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, which covers all the other ways we can misuse our body sexually. People are wrong when they say that uh, Jesus never spoke about homosexual sex, because that skates over how any Jewish person of that time would have included um, that under the heading of porneia. We should be in no doubt that adultery is not love. When an expert in, in the law questioned Jesus about the greatest commandment, he says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. See, as Christians who want to love God and love our neighbor, that means we're going to embrace God's purposes for marriage. Now, we can do that as a single person by remaining celibate. And if we're married, by staying faithful to our spouse. Adultery is not love. To, to commit adultery is the very opposite of loving, being loving to their spouse. It is not loving your own spouse. It is not loving your own children. 
It is not loving your church members. It is not loving to society. It is not loving towards God. It is not love full stop. It, we need to call it for what it is. It is selfish, sinful lust. That is what adultery is. In reality, it is a selfish act of hatred towards my neighbor. And it's devastating uh, for the spouse who's been cheated on. And the Bible warns us too that it's dangerous for the adulterer. So in Proverbs chapter 6, we get this parental advice um, to a son. And uh, it says this in chapter 6, verse 24. Keep away from your neighbor's wife, from the smooth talk of a wayward woman. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys on your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burnt? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. A man who commits adultery has no sense. Uh, whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. Adultery is playing with fire, the Bible warns. And so we need to be radical about avoiding adultery and lust. So let's turn back to our New Testament reading from Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Firstly, let's be clear about what it's not saying. It's not saying that you're sinning by noticing that another person is attractive or even noticing another person is sexually attractive. That's not what it's about. To be honest, that's a sign that you've got a normal, healthy physiology. So what is it saying? Well, what the original Greek is talking about is not a glance, but a sustained gaze that is calculated to either stir up lust in the other person, which is where the Greek construction goes, or in yourself. It's about flirting. It's about the attempt to stir up sexual arousal in another person or in yourself. And to begin down that pathway is already to have committed adultery in your heart. And to keep going down that track, you could well well end up committing adultery in practice. And this is so serious that Jesus says you need to deal radically with your lust. Look at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Notice with me that Jesus is a hellfire preacher. The most loving person there's ever been 
is the one who is most passionately warning us about the horror of hell. Now, this is hyperbolic language. It's the most extreme language you're going to find in the Bible. It's not intended for for us to pick up a knife and to do damage to our eyes or our hands. It is shocking language to wake us up. What price would you put on your eye or your hand? Let's just say, look, I'll give you an incredibly priceless piece of art or an amazing jewel uh, for the, if I can just chop off your hand. Would you go for the trade? No way. Give me my hand any day. Give me my eye any day. It doesn't matter how great the piece of art is. My hand and my eye are way more precious than that. And yet Jesus says, it's so serious, this lust and adultery, that actually it will result in your whole body being thrown into hell. That it would be better to gouge out your eye or to chop off your hand rather than go there. Now let me repeat, Jesus is not wanting us to take a knife and to do any physical damage to our eyes or our hands. Because as we've read from Mark chapter 7, the problem is our sinful hearts. And you can't go digging your heart out with a knife. He is warning us, though, to get serious about lust. Uh, Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this um, in chapter 6, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. What we gaze at fills us with either light or darkness. Let's be in no doubt that pornography is filling your body with darkness and lust. And linked with masturbation, it is an addictive and ever-degrading downward cycle of lust and darkness and despair. Lust is never satisfied. It just gets more and more twisted and dark. And if we're going to honor marriage, we have to be radical about slaying lust. There's a great book you can read. If you want to read more about this, it's by Tim Chester. It's called Captured by a Better Vision. And I would commend it to you, uh, how to live a porn-free life. And if you go to the Desiring God website, you can get a free PDF, or you can buy a copy of it in the shops probably, of John Piper's book, Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. And the first two chapters are particularly excellent and worth reading. Thirdly, I want to finish by talking about hope for sufferers and perpetrators of adultery. Firstly, for those who found it so painful to listen to the sermon this morning, because you've, you've known what it is to discover that your spouse has been unfaithful. And what I want to say to you is that the Lord God knows what you're going through. Just read through the account of Hosea's prophecy And see what Hosea is told to do. And it is a reflection of what God experiences. God is always faithful to his promises, yet his people continually break faith with him. And the prophets call it spiritual adultery. So yes, the Lord God knows the pain that you're experiencing. And here are some verses for you. Psalm 34 verse 18. 
The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Here's a wonderful promise from Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. Or Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says this. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? I'd encourage you to meditate on those verses. But there'll be others here today who have committed adultery. In practice, or you've committed adultery in your heart. And what I would say is, don't minimize it. Do see it as serious. Don't be deceived by our society that says it's not a problem. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 with me as we close. 1 Corinthians 6, you'll find that on page 1148. 1148. Corinth was infamous for its sexual debauchery as a city. And yet the gospel took root there and people became Christians out of very many uh, messy sexual relationships. And it says this, verse 9. Oh, do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear, isn't it? But don't fail to notice verse 11. And that is what some of you were. There were people in the church in Corinth and it They'd had those backgrounds. That had been their life story, one of those things. That is what some of you were. Churches will be full of sexually broken people who've come to find in Jesus some wonderful things. Look what they found, verse 11. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What wonderful news for sexually immoral people, for idolaters, for adulterers. The Lord Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. He was always faithful in all his relationships. He was tempted in every way like us but without sin. And he went to the cross as a sacrificial substitute. He the righteous, for us the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. And if we, if we repent of our sins today and come to Jesus by faith, all our sins, including our sexual sins, whether homosexual or heterosexual or whatever, can be washed clean by the blood of Christ. Washed clean. We can be purified and sanctified, made holy and pleasing to God through being united to Jesus Christ by faith. We don't have to come in here with shame. 
for we've been purified and sanctified. God will declare us right with him. He will fill us with the Holy Spirit, enabling us to say no to ungodliness and sin and to live righteously in self-controlled lives, for we are now justified. Isn't that amazing? That is the truth. And so, my friends, let us honor marriage as God's good gift and let us seek to be, by His Holy Spirit, a countercultural community that models these things and then extends the arms of God's grace to a, a broken and a sexually broken world. There's hope in Christ. Isn't that great news? It is wonderful news. We're now going to sing a song that helps us reflect on what it cost Christ to achieve this salvation for us. And then we're going to, in a time of communion together...